three more studies, and so I want you to read ahead so you know where we're going and what the Lord is going to be teaching us, and so I encourage you to do that. Um, but what, what have we seen already as we have covered the first eight chapters of Acts? It's been amazing because what we've seen in the first eight chapters of Acts is that the church began and the church grew, and then the church just began to spread, albeit it was because of the persecution. But it spread nonetheless, and at each stage, as we've seen the church be birthed and began to grow and began to spread, at each stage, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what has fueled the, the, the whole this whole thing, man, it has ignited people to be on fire. I'm sure many of you guys have heard that term, to be on fire, you know, um, that we should be on fire for the Lord. But, but this is what we see here, that this, the church, again, it's, it's begun, it's growing, and it's spreading, albeit the fuel that ignited that was Jesus, you know. Those who were trying to put that fire out, by coming against the church, that is, by persecuting the church, only made things worse. And I say that in a sense because persecution was more of a lighter fluid than it was a water. <laughs> and you guys have all, you know, the fire's going, man, and you throw some more, some lighter fluid, it just takes off. And that's what persecution seemed to be for the church, because the more they persecuted, the more they grew, the more on fire they became. It has been the case from the very beginning of the church, the people have tried to extinguish it. And it will be like that, and it has been like that to the present, and it will be like this to the very end. The church will always, always be persecuted. And the church, as much as people might say, oh, the church is dead, that this and that, it's like, no, the church of Jesus Christ continues to grow. You might not see it in your little circles, but it is growing. We might not see it in the United States, but it is growing above and beyond measure in other countries. But I truly believe that it's growing here, too. People are starting to realize with all the craziness going on in the, in the world, we need God. We need God back in our, in our lives. And people are starting to understand that. There has been many who have tried to end the work of God. And all of it has been to no avail. And the more they try, the more it grows. And I shared this with you before, and I'll share it again. Because when they kill one, ten come in their place. And when they kill ten, a hundred fill in that spot. And when they hit, kill a hundred, a thousand gets, you know, gets gets going because of that and so again you get the picture that every time persecution comes against the christian there, there there's something that happens within the christian that it should cause you to grow to mature to understand man there must be something about this whole jesus thing if people will just want to snuff them out for two thousand years they've been trying to put jesus away they can't they can try to to, to, to push him aside but he just continues to influence people's lives Persecution, again, is a lighter fluid that helps the church grow and to spread the gospel. And some who have tried to extinguish the fire have caught fire themselves. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats of, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him uh, to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, my Lord? Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and, I, I, and you will be told what you must do. And the, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when he opened his when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. What an amazing story. What an amazing testimony, I should say, that we have here. We've gotten to know Saul just a little bit in the previous chapters. And like I shared before, because back in chapter 7, it told us that Stephen, or they laid down some clothes uh, by this young man by the name of Saul at the end of chapter 7, if you remember that. And I told you back then that, that Saul was not this innocent bystander who just so happened to be there, this young buck, this buckaroo, this youngster that was hanging out there, that people were going, here, hold my coat while I go and stone this guy. He wasn't an innocent bystander. No, it says this, that he not only consented to his death, but the Amplified puts it like this in, in, uh, back in chapter 7, Saul, or chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. But Saul, uh, Saul was not only consenting to Stephen's death, but he was pleased and entirely approving. He was approving of this whole thing. He understood what was happening. He was already in a position that he didn't have to go do the stoning per se, but he consented to it. He gave his stamp of approval. He understood what that meant, that, that when he consented, he was saying, good job, guys, because we need to snuff this whole thing out. If you remember back in chapter 8, verse 3, it tells us that Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house. And dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The word havoc in the Greek and in that verse is, is expounded upon in the Amplified once again. That word havoc, it means shamefully treated and laid waste of the church continuously with cruelty and violence. He's not no innocent bystander here. This guy Saul is ruthless. He understands what he is doing. Saul has been engaged in persecuting the church, which is made up of the disciples of the Lord Jesus for quite some time. And now, and it told us back in chapter 8 that he would go in, into other places and do these things. It tells us later on that he would continue to do the same. And so he is now seeking opportunity to continue the to gratify, if you will, this insatiable, unquenchable, and limitless appetite and desire on a larger scale to continue in the persecution of the church. That is to say that he, he, he had already gone out in, in, in other times, but he wasn't satisfied. So he wants to expand his horizons in persecuting the church. He wants to continue to wreak havoc in this new movement that he is so opposed to. And he wants to put a stop to it. He does not want it to grow. He does not want it to continue. And he is going to do all he can to put a stop to this. It tells us in verse 1 here, Then Saul, still breathing threats, Saul was not letting up. He was breathing or still breathing threats and murder, which means that he was still working hard at this to the point of being out of breath, if you will. The word still in this text means of, of a thing which went on formerly, whereas now a different state of things exists or has begun to exist, according to the Thayer's Greek lexicon. The word breathing in the Greek is, a phrase, is the phrase breathing out. So the breathing is two words in the Greek is breathing out. It means to breathe in and to breathe out. But 
express, it's expressed of a deep or any deep agitating, disturbing emotion as to breathe rapidly and violently to express violent anger. So, so the phrase to breathe out is an emotion that is absorbing and agitating and exhausting and it demands a rapid circulation of the blood. In other words, things are beginning to move here. The adrenaline is pumping to where it, is, it, it, it needs to, to, to supply this, this energy, this vigor, this vitality. It means that he needs to, to, to increase his supply of oxygen or air. This is, again, all of this is, is speaking about how he is still breathing threats. So much so that, that he needs to increase his air because his lungs need it. And you could just picture some, somebody who is just almost exhausted. <laughs> and to me, because I'm a theologian, I go back to Looney Tunes. Right? And you think of the Tasmanian devil as he's going about... <laughs> Or, or, or Toro, the, the bull in Looney Tunes as well. Where just, and his nostrils are just doing this, right? That's all in commentaries, honestly. I'm kidding. <laughs> but again, you could, you could understand that, that here, all of this is speaking about a man by the name of Saul whose attitude is like this angry animal going to go get his prey and he will stop at nothing to the point of he is out of breath because he is still breathing threats. He is still on this move and on this hunt to do whatever it takes to snuff this out. He has this appetite. It's insatiable. He wants it. He needs it because he hates it that much. And if he can snuff it out, if he could put it out, that's what he wants to do. The word threats mean a menace. It means a menace. In other words, Saul of Tarsus here, this man is a menace. He was a, he was a threat. And he's breathing. He, every threat is, is, is this heavy breath. And it speaks about a, a man who is violently engaged. Who is bent on vengeance. I, I, I set this up like this because it's important for us to understand that when it says that Saul was still breathing threats, it wasn't like he is just saying some stuff that, that, that is minuscule. He is, he is ready to pounce. He is ready to hurt. He is ready to kill because it says that he's not, even, he's not only threatening but murder as well. And that word murder in the King James is slaughter. That's who this man is. He is such a menace that he wants to slaughter whoever he can that is following the way. He is following opposite what he has been taught uh, to do. And so there's this intense desire to put to death any Christian if possible or even put him to death. Now it's interesting because later on, in one of the times that he, he shares this testimony in the book of Acts, in Acts 20, 20, uh, 26, verses 10 and 11, and you can jot these things down. It says, it says, as Paul is speaking, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I casted my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. In other words, to renounce Jesus. And being exceedingly enraged against them, he says, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So we're getting a picture here in our text that he is headed to Damascus. Again, this isn't the first time that he has gone out of Jerusalem to go and bring people back and put them into prison, men or women. He could care less. If you're following the way, if you're following Jesus, he wants to put an end to it. 
It's interesting because Paul, as the Apostle Paul, Saul as the Apostle Paul, ends up telling us in his letters that he did all of these things because of the zeal, the enthusiasm, and passion he had for God. But I will switch that and say, no, it wasn't for God, it was for his religion. He thought he was doing the work of God, but he was doing it for his religion because he was so engrossed in it that he lost all sight of what God truly wanted to do because God Almighty, the one that he supposedly was serving, was the one that sent Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. And he is trying to put an end to it. Persecuting the church, he thought he was doing the work of God. He thought he was doing God a service. He also admitted in one of his other letters that he did it out of ignorance. Not truly knowing what he was doing. Again, people would say, oh, come on, pastor. He knew what he was doing. Yes, he did, but he, he was ignorant. He, 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 he didn't know in that sense what he was doing because, because he was so locked up in religion that he, he missed it. He missed Jesus. He missed the Messiah. He, he understood that he missed the mark in that sense. And so he, he did it out of ignorance and, and also purely out of unbelief. He did not believe that Jesus could possibly be the Messiah. Again, because he was so blinded by his religion. And that's what religion does. It blinds people from sometimes the truth that is out there. Tradition is more important. What man says is more important than what God actually says through his word. Paul was no stranger to the word. He understood the word. He was, he was an up-and-coming Pharisee. He knew what the scriptures said. But he ignored it. He knew what Isaiah spoke about, the suffering servant. He understood that, but he ignored it. And so because of this, that he is still breathing threats of, and murder against the disciples, he went to the high priest and asked them for letters or authority to go to another region, to the synagogue of Damascus. You see, Saul was, was building a name for himself. Quite different than what we saw in Philip, right? When Philip went to, 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 to Samaria, he was preaching Jesus. He wasn't building a name for himself. He was pointing people to Jesus. Paul was pointing people to himself in that sense because he was trying to build this name for himself and the high priests were more than glad to accommodate him with any kind of letter that he might need to bring these people to justice in their eyes. As long as they, the, the, the high priest, didn't have blood on their hands. Let somebody else do the dirty work. They could care less. Hey, you want to go kill Christians? Go kill them. Just don't tell them I sent you. <laughs> now, even though the high priest didn't have jurisdiction over the synagogue in Damascus, which is in Syria, the Roman government normally recognized any kind of extradition, the right to extradition, to bring people from other places back to Jerusalem to, to put them to trial. Whenever the, the high, priest, high priest demanded something like that from the Roman government, they usually gave it to them. And so we see that the believers... Again, this persecution that had erupted in Jerusalem, they had fled from Jerusalem and they had already reached Damascus, which was about 130 miles due northeast of where Jerusalem was. In other words, these believers who had fled the persecution did not lay low. They did not keep it on the down low. They did not keep quiet, in other words. They continued to share the gospel wherever they went. And it just kind of goes to show us that these guys who, who, who had the gospel, who, 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 who were out there, you know, sharing God's word and now being scattered, were not embarrassed, were not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they get to Damascus and they're already starting to share it. So much so that word comes from Damascus, 130 miles 
from there back to Jerusalem to tell them, hey, there's a movement going on way over there. And so I am assuming that that is why Paul wants to make his way over to Damascus. To bring them back and punish them. To quiet down the movement that has now reached about 120 miles. 130 miles. But his plans will end up backfiring here. In other words, in an effort to try to extinguish what was going on, he himself will be ignited by it. He uses the term of the way in verse 2. Anyone who is found of the way. And this term, it, it refers to, the, to Christianity, this new movement, the church. And it's only used here in the book of Acts, and it's used five other times throughout the book of Acts, the way. And so in verse 3, it says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. I would bet that Saul, as he's coming, and I, I mean, he's, he's not alone here as we see. He has this caravan with him. And, and I don't know if, how the height is coming down or, or, or looking, but off in the distance, Damascus was a good-sized city. And so you could imagine that he could see it off in the distance. So as he's coming, I can almost imagine his adrenaline starting to pump a little bit here. His nostrils probably starting to flare back and forth going, oh yeah. You, you could imagine that, that at this point, it has been almost a six-day journey, if not a little bit more. But he knows that it will be well worth it because of the news that he has heard over there. So he's on his way. He sees it off in the distance, says that he was near, and you could imagine that he, is, he could taste it already. There will be blood tonight. That's his heart, man. He's ready. He's ready for all of this. But yet he has no idea what is about to happen. <laughs> he has no clue, man, that he will be stopped in his tracks. Because the word suddenly here, he says, so he journeyed and came near Damascus and suddenly, and that word suddenly is just that, abruptly, without warning, out of the blue. In other words, he, he didn't even see it coming. <laughs> he has his eyes set on persecution. He has his eyes set on, on destruction and threats. That's where his eyes are focused on. And he didn't even see it coming. The man that was about to go and capture those who believed in Jesus was about to be captured himself. The one who had authority to go arrest the people that were following the way is about to get arrested. <laughs> so never underestimate the power of God. You see, I think oftentimes we have those people in mind, and maybe you were one of them, that people have said, that person, never. They can never ask Jesus. They are such a threat to Christianity. They hate Jesus with all their heart. And I know that there's people like you or others who, who were just so dead set against this Christianity that you fought, you fought it at every turn. And yet, never underestimate that those who fight the hardest and cry the loudest are the ones that are about to get hurt <laughs> or get arrested by the Lord. They're the ones that are about to, to get captured because they're fighting so hard, they're running so hard against Christ. He takes notice of those things. So never underestimate when, when you have people in your lives, and again, maybe you can testify to this, when you have people in your lives that are just dogging you and dogging you and dogging you about your Christianity, they're saying everything they could possibly say against Jesus and against His church and against God, man, and they're like, bring it on. I could care less, man. And we're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. It's like, don't worry about it. God's in control of that. In the midst of people coming after Christianity, God can stop them in the track and save them. That's the picture that we have here. We see that he is breathing threats and murder. He is on his way to go do the, the deed. 
And yet, all of a sudden, he is the one that gets caught in God's crosshairs. He was on his way. He was hell-bent on doing destruction. He wanted to make hell on earth for those who followed after Jesus. He wanted that so bad that he could taste it. And yet, in the midst of what he is doing, God stops him in his track and he shines a light on him. And, and a voice is heard from heaven, it says. Now, we don't know if it was the light that shone or the voice that he heard that knocked Saul off his high horse, or if it was both. Now, I know some of you Bible scholars will say, Pastor Zeke, it says nothing about a horse there. <laughs> I know. But this is what I picture, right? That's just me. He could have been walking the whole thing. But I just picture him on this horse, man, and he is coming in like a victor, man, because he's going to come and defeat these people. So whether he was on a horse or not, guess what? He was high-minded anyways. And he gets knocked down to the ground. This man is on the ground, and the adrenaline that had been pumping when he saw what he was about to go do, and he was getting excited, I would have to say that adrenaline has now shifted. Or should I say it's been being released in a different direction. He is scared to death now. He's th threatening death. And yet, I believe at this point, he is scared to death. Because he's not in control right now. He has no clue what has just happened to him. And the voice that Saul heard that day was about to change him forever. He will never, ever, ever be the same from this day forward. This testimony of his that we see in the book of Acts in chapter 9, we see it two other times in the book of Acts. We know that he talks about this testimony several times throughout his letters. He will never, ever, ever be the same. He hears as he's knocked down to the ground the voice that says to him, Saul, Saul. And I don't know how you, you hear that. Of an angry God, Saul, Saul, or, or a passionate God that's going, Saul, Saul. I, I, I just picture this sound of just compassion on this man who is, who's hell-bent on destroying God and the things of God and him hearing his name in such a tender way of going, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me, Saul? The Amplified puts this portion and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you harassing, troubling, and molesting me? If you will, turn over to John chapter 15. I want to read to you why I believe God or Jesus takes this so personal. To better understand why Jesus would ask him the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In, Acts, or, or in John 15, 18 to, to 25, Jesus is saying this to his disciples. If the world hates you, verse 18, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sins. He who hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. I, I, I love the fact that we have this, that Jesus prepared his disciples for all of this that was coming against them. This is why Jesus takes it so personal, because we are one with Jesus. The Bible tells us that he is in us and we are in him, just like he is in the Father and the Father is in him. It says that they made their home within us. And that's why Jesus is taking this so personal. When people come against his church, when people come against his bride, he takes it personal. And again, when people are coming against you because of your Christianity, because of your Jesus, don't take it personal. It's not you. It's Jesus in you that they are coming against. That's what he tells us in, in John 15. They don't hate you. They hate Jesus in you. Oh no, they really hate me. Well, they hate Jesus because they hate you because of who you are in Jesus. Hey, you're not greater than the master. You can picture, you could picture the scene here as, as, as all this is playing out, as, as the bully is going against his prey, you know, and he is so fired up, and all of a sudden, big brother steps in front of the, the prey, and bully like, ah. That's the picture I get, man. As he's going after his prey, man, big brother just steps in. He's like, what? What are you going to do now, Paul? Saul? Because he brings them to the ground. And I love where Deuteronomy 20, verse 4 says, For the Lord your God is he who goes before you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. I'm sure Saul thought that all the people who were following after the way were fools. I'm sure he could not understand how dare they walk against Judaism, against what he knew, what he had been studying, what he would be teaching eventually. Again, before all of this happened, when you looked at Saul on the road to Damascus, he was a very zealous man to go do what he thought would be service to God in persecuting the church. If you were to ask him, to stop him and ask him the moment before this whole light was shining and before this whole voice was speaking, before he finds himself on the ground, if you were to ask him why he was doing what he was doing, I'm sure that he would say something like this. And I, and I want to quote it from this commentary that I got, that, G, that, that Saul would say something like this, Jesus of Nazareth is dead. You, you expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah according to your law? Anybody who hangs on a tree is a curse. Would God have taken a cursed false prophet and made him into a Messiah? No. His followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them. But their power comes from Satan and not God. This is a dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys the historic Jewish faith. Again, Paul never said that like that, but that's something he would say. Because he was so adamant that what these people were doing was wrong. After all, Judaism served and worshipped the one true God. <clears throat> that is a true statement. But it had become a religion and that relationship was gone that they should have been having. The kind of relationship that, that Abraham had, the kind of relationship that Moses had with, with God. It had become such a religion that they had been so blinded by this religion by now. Throughout the hundreds of years, and Saul would find out shortly just how blind he was. And as the light was shining, the voice that he heard, calls out his name. Can you imagine that? And he knows that it's something beyond his control. Saul was an up-and-coming 
Pharisee and he was gaining respect by all those who were above him and all those who were below him. But now he is humbled. He is reduced to nothing. At this point, he understands at this point that it wasn't this regular person who has just knocked him off his horse or knocked him to the ground. His response is, who are you, Lord? It could better be translated, who are you, sir or mister? Who are you? And he uses this respectful term because he understands something has just knocked me down. And he had no power over it. He couldn't get up if his life depended on it at this very point. He was on the ground and he could not move. He was humbled. He is as nothing. And he is about to find out who he has been messing with. And I'm sure he had no clue who it was when he heard this voice. After all, he's, he's been persecuting a lot of people. But this one's different. This one, he, he has no strength. Any vigor he had before is all gone. Any adrenaline that he had to put up a fight is done. The voice comes back to him when he says, Who are you, Lord? In verse 5, he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So now this voice identifies himself as Jesus. It's interesting because one of the other testimonies that that is shared in, in Acts 22, Paul says that Jesus said to him, I am Jesus of Nazareth totally identifying himself as the one who had been crucified. Totally identifying himself as the one that Peter would be preaching about. Because time and time again, he mentioned Jesus of Nazareth. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the council knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. And now Saul has confronted, is now confronted with Jesus of Nazareth. The one that he, quite possible he's telling his, peop, his followers he is dead. He's a myth. And at this point, there's no denying it now. He heard the voice. It'd be one of those things that you would never ever be able to forget. I don't think Paul or Saul at this point when he says, I am Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth goes, oh, come on, he's dead. (laughs) He knew that this was different. He knew that his whole world was just about to change. He understood something has happened. Saul came to know that very moment that Jesus was very much alive. And everything he had ever learned, everything he was already starting to teach was now out the window because he could not be the same anymore. He had to repent. He had to have a change of life, a change of heart. You see, that's what happens when you run into the risen Christ. That's what happens when you run into Jesus of Nazareth. Because I don't know what happened to you in your life when you first were exposed to Jesus of Nazareth and you came to the realization of who he was. If you said, oh, whatever, and it took you a while to understand it. Or you came to that point where it was just like, like the conversion of Saul here, man. From one minute to the next, you're turned around. It was that quick for me, for me in my life. Again, people would, would have said, oh, but Zeke, you were a nice guy already. It's like, I was a filthy sinner on my way to hell. And that day, it, it all turned around. That day, 30, 39 years, almost 40 years ago, it got turned around that quick. Paul could not continue to kick against the goads or the pricks, it says in the King James. Now, this portion right here where it says it is hard for you to kick against the goads is not in the original in this verse, but it does appear in the other testimony in Acts 26, 14. Now, a goad is a sharpened metal point at the end of a long pole 
it says, that, that would be used by farmers to prod animals to keep them moving along. And some stubborn oxen would kick against it. But they would always make things worse for themselves. <laughs> Instead of like, just move, around, move along, little doggy. It's like, no, no. Mm. <laughs> it says, quit kicking against the goads, man. Quit kicking against the goads. Some of us have scars from kicking against the goads. The conversion of Saul here, some believe, is one of the most important events of the church from the time of the Pentecost, that this would be like the second huge event in the, in the life of the church because it, as it's growing, as it's, it's maturing stuff, to have a guy like Saul who has now been converted, who has seen Christ face-to-face, as you will, because he would, he would say that for, for the rest of his life, that he's seen the Lord face-to-face. However that worked out. But this conversion, again, it was so significant, again, that, that the writer Luke would mention it this time and two other times in the book of Acts. This conversion, it would prepare the reader here because we're going to lose Paul for a few chapters, but it would prepare the readers of the book of Acts to, for the gospel to now go out to the Gentiles as we will see in chapter 10. You see, Paul would become the apostle of the Gentiles or to the Gentiles, but it would be Peter, the other apostle, who would pave the way for that. When he went up to Samaria, but then later on he would go over to the household of Cornelius. The account of Saul's Damascus Road experience may be recorded here and put here on purpose to relate to Stephen's martyrism or martyrdom. In other words, the words that Stephen seemed to share that he encouraged, that it ignited Paul to renew that, that, that vigor to go and stomp out Christianity. Because if the things that Stephen said when he was on trial, right before he was put to death, if they are tr- true and correct that Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon all pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, then the law was in jeopardy and, and Paul was going to fight against that. And so this is probably why or what caused Saul to continue this persecution of the church. And I could guarantee you that all of this was just coming to mind as he is now on the ground. All the things that he heard from Stephen. The fact that he was put to death. It says in verse 6, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but was led by the hand and was brought to Damascus, into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. He was overwhelmed. He was amazed at what just happened. What what else could you say? (laughs) He had been captured. He had been arrested. He had been humbled. The one who had letters of authority was now in pure submission right now. It happened that fast. In Saul's life. One moment he was riding high. And the next moment he was bowed down. And he can't get up. He was a hunter. And he had become the hunted. And he had no clues. that Je- He had no clue that Jesus was on his trail. This whole time. Guys never underestimate the work. Of the Holy Spirit. And the lives of people. 
that you feel are just like Saul, they would never be a candidate for Christianity because they are so far against it. I could guarantee you this, the Holy Spirit's on this trail. <laughs> just continue to pray for them. Continue to pray that one down, that one day they will be brought down low. That the hunted would be the hunted. The hunter would be the hunted. Saul had, had, had just, hadn't realized just how blind he had been. And what his, the, the zeal, it had amounted to nothing in his life. You see, he would now see and understand. He would now understand why these other followers of Jesus would be willing to go to prison. He would understand why Stephen would say what he did when he got killed. He would start understanding, oh, I get it. I understand why it's worth going to prison and why it's worth dying for. He would now start obeying the one he was persecuting. The roles had changed and the Lord gave him the instructions and now he was going to begin to follow those instructions. I love the fact that once again, as last week we saw when Philip was praying and asking the Lord for direction, that, it, that he was told to rise and go. And we see that term once again here when he says, what do you want from me, Lord? Arise and go. And then it says, then Saul arose. The one who moments earlier was leading a group of men, was now being led by the hand by the same group. Saul had been so blind that the Lord allowed him to now become physically blind, to understand how, just how spiritually blinded he had been. Do you remember? Do you remember how blind you used to be? Do you remember... When you fought against Jesus, when you kicked against the goads, if you can, in your in your mind's eye, to go back to that moment, and maybe even before that, when Jesus had been calling you, and you'd just been kicking and fighting and fighting, and then one day in your life, man, you surrendered. You surrendered because God humbled you. If you could go back to that and remember, and realize just how blind you were. You see, God can use Saul's conversion to prove to us that no one's out of his reach because you weren't out of his reach. As stubborn as you were, <laughs> as hard-headed as you were, as hard as you were fighting against Christ, he brought you to a place of humility and said, you can't do this without me. My prayer in my heart is that we can understand today that we can reflect on the salvation of the Lord in our own personal lives because each and every one of us have people in our lives who are continuing to fight against Jesus, who continue to kick against the goads. And God's saying, don't give up on them because I didn't give up on you. I didn't give up on you. And the moment that I broke you, it was because I was going to lift you up. Guys, if you, if you read the rest of the story... You know how it turns out, man. That Paul, at the end of his life, would say it was well worth it. All of it was well worth it. Guys, there has not been a moment in my life that I wish I was back in the world. Oh, you have those times, you know, where it's like, oh, it's too hard. But I never wanted to go back there. I know it's back there. It's dead. It's worthless. Where God has us today, guys, let us move forward, but do not forget to continue to pray for those in our lives who need this kind of road to Damascus conversion because, man, they're around us each and every day. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray right now, Lord, that you would truly, Lord God, remind us as your, as your people, Lord God, those who are following after you of the moment, Lord God, that you saved us. Lord, that we would not forget, Lord God, your kindness, and how you reached out to us, Father. I pray, God, that we would never, ever forget, Lord God, where you've brought us from. That, Lord, you would remind us continually, Lord God, 
of that sweet salvation. Lord, that day that you showed up, that day when we heard your voice for the first time and we, re we responded with an I'm sorry, Lord. Lord, I pray, God, that we would never forget the, that time, that moment. Lord, there's people in our lives right now who you want to touch, to minister to. And you're hot on, hot on their trail, Lord. We know that. Lord, if there's any way you can use us in ministering to anybody in our lives, Lord God, that, God, you would open those doors for us to share. Lord, I don't know if you've brought somebody in this morning who's so far away from you, Lord God, that you've been calling them to come. And for some reason, they showed up today. And Lord, you want to call them into the kingdom. Lord, you've humbled them. You've brought them to a point in their lives, Lord God, that they are desperate and they can't get up right now. But you want to speak to them. You want to call out their name. And Father, I pray that their ears will be open to hear that. If that's you this morning, I want to pray for you. That you would respond to, to the voice when he calls your name right now. That you say, Lord, here I am. What do you want from me? Is there anyone here who I could pray for that needs Jesus because he's brought you to that point? Is there anyone? I want to pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for reaching out. Thank you for touching, Lord God, your people. Lord, give us boldness, Lord, to be like those disciples that went off to Damascus, to not keep it quiet, to not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would be lights, Lord, that we would be salt to the people around us. Lord, use us in any way possible to continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord. Lord, you're the one that needs to be lifted up. You're the one that wants to humble the people, to restore them, to, to make new, Lord. And I pray that you would use us as believers, Lord, as we go out these doors. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness and for your goodness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we...